Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is timeless and true. We thank you that it has withstood the test of time and of criticism because it is the word of God. It is the truth that we can anchor our souls to. Lord, we thank you for what it reveals about you, your love, how you sent your son to take our place, for, to pay the payment that we had no hope of paying, so that you can reconcile us to yourself. Lord, we thank you for what it teaches us about the church, the body of Christ, and, and, and what you do for us and what we are to represent before you and before this world. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and open our eyes and open our hearts, as we sang about in that hymn just a few minutes ago. Illumine us, Lord, through your spirit, that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in middle school and high school, New York State uh, forced all middle and high school students to take standardized tests, uh, which may be similar to the standardized tests around here. I distinctly remember in one of my social studies classes that we spent a lot of actual class time, the teacher teaching us how to write a well-formulated essay for this upcoming standardized test. They hammered into our minds how to formulate this essay exactly the way that the graders wanted to see it so that we would get as high of grades as possible. The most important part of this essay construction was the thesis. The thesis was always the last sentence of your introductory paragraph and always contained the main points of what you would be elaborating on in the body paragraphs of your essay. You can tell how well they hammered this into my mind because I still remember it. So for instance, a thesis on this essay may read, such and such led to this certain war because of reason A, reason B, and reason C. That was supposed to be how your thesis sentence was written. You then talked about reason A in your first body paragraph, reason B in the next body paragraph, and so on and so forth. If you did just that right, if you followed that formula and you did just that right, you were already well onto a good grade. You know what though? What seemed a little odd to me at the time, making sure I wrote this exactly the way the graders wanted to see it, it did help me stay on track with writing well-constructed college uh, term papers. Well, exactly not the same way, Paul was a highly educated man, trained by an influential Pharisee, who would have known exactly how to construct his letter in the most effective way possible. As such, the verses in our passage this morning are the thesis of this letter, of 1 Corinthians, of this letter to the Corinthian church, that contain the main points that Paul will come back to throughout his letter. Before we get into the thesis in our passage this morning, I want to do a little bit of summarized review. I know last Sunday was a holiday weekend. I know it was 120 degrees out. So I, I, I know a lot of us missed this last week. So I'm going to do a bit of summarized review uh, to lay some foundation for those who weren't able to be with us last week, as well as to firm up and solidify the foundation for those of us who were, but maybe weren't paying the most attention that we could have last week. We'll, we'll sure this up uh, for everybody uh, this morning. 
So the first point that we're coming to before we get into the thesis here is the background. Uh, forget the, the references on top. We're, we're going to be in verses 4 through 9, uh, but we're going we're to set up some background here. We spent a good deal of time last week talking about what in Paul's ministry had led to the gospel being spread in Corinth and the formation and establishment of the church there. So we're going to pull up our map here. If you can remember, what was the last letter we were in that we, that we studied? Second Thessalonians, right? So we were, we were dealing with this port city over here, Thessalonica. After Paul had to flee Th Thessalonica, he went down to Berea, made his way down to Athens, and then eventually made his way to Corinth here, the capital city of Achaia. We talked about how it was on Paul's second missionary journey, following his two to three month stay in Thessalonica, and his flee from there to neighboring Berea, where he was also forced to flee down to Athens, that, fall, that Paul finally made his way down to Corinth, the capital city of the region of Achaia. Does anyone remember from last week how long Paul stayed in Corinth? How long did Paul stay in Corinth? Anybody who was here last week? 18 months. Perfect. A year and a half. That's what we find out from Acts chapter 18. We talked about how 18 months, a whole year and a half, was a long time in Paul's ministry, right? Where he had substantial time to develop deep relationships and deep roots in that city of Corinth. That will be crucial for how he addresses them as a church in this letter. Towards the end of that 18-month period, what happened? A new governor named Galileo was put into power in Corinth, the capital city of Achaia. At that point, when there was a new governor put into place, Galileo, the Jewish community tried to pull something on Paul, and they hauled him in front of that new governor on charges of preaching against the Jewish law, hoping that this Roman governor was going to throw Paul in jail because of that. Galileo, the newly appointed governor over Achaia, however, couldn't have cared less about what was brought before him. Couldn't have cared less about Jewish matters. Told the Jewish people as much, dropped the charge against Paul, and told his accusers to get lost. There was a man named Sosthenes, the leader of the Corinthian synagogue, also there in front of the judgment seat of Galileo that day. Luke tells us in Acts 18 that following that judgment by Galileo, a group of people took hold of Sosthenes and beat him to a pulp right there in front of Galileo while he didn't give a care about that either. Whether it was the Jewish community who did that, enraged by their judicial defeat and wanting somebody to blame and taking it out on him, or whether Sosthenes had recently become a believer in Jesus and thus further enraged his fellow Jewish community, or whether it was a group of pagan anti-Semitic uh, onlooking onlook Gentiles who were emboldened by Galileo's obvious lack of concern for anything Jewish, the result was the same. Sosthenes suffered a humiliating and traumatic beating that day. You can read all about this in Acts 18. Last week, we looked at the beginning part of 1 Corinthians 1. And whose name do we show up, do we see show up again in chapter 1, verse 1 of 1 Corinthians? Sosthenes, right? 
We talked about how biblical scholars differ as to the identity of Paul's scribe, Sosthenes, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 1.1, but that Luke makes a point of describing Sosthenes in Acts 18 when he didn't need to unless Sosthenes was instrumental in the early church. The fact that Paul doesn't add any more clarification to the Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1.1, other than that he's a brother in Christ, further gives evidence that the scribe Sosthenes in 1 Corinthians 1.1 and the leader of the synagogue described in Acts 18 were one and the same. They were the same person. It's a beautiful story. What was, our, what was the whole point of that? It was a beautiful story of a personal experience of the grace of God that Paul exactly describes in those first few verses of 1 Corinthians 1. A personal experience of the grace of God that Paul exactly describes in those first few verses of 1 Corinthians 1. Probably related uh, to that traumatic experience, Sosthenes either quit being the Corinthian synagogue leader or was driven out of that position. Touched by Paul's courage of faith in the face of that trial, Sosthenes may very well have gone looking for Paul and finally caught up with him in Ephesus. See, we have the luxury of looking back on things and seeing how they connected. But when Paul saw... In Corinth, when Paul saw what happened to the leader of the synagogue and saw that his dropped charges were only because of the governor's obvious lack of respect or concern about the Jewish people living in Corinth, Paul saw that it was time to start wrapping things up in Corinth. Chapters closing on his time in Corinth, and it's time for him to move on. Since archaeologists have found an inscription that gives evidence that Galileo's governorship would have started in the summer of 51, in addition to what else we know about Paul's missionary journeys, we can fit Paul's ministry in Corinth lasting from the spring of 49 AD to the late summer of 51 AD. The spring of 49 AD to the late summer of 51 AD. Does anyone remember from last week who Paul met in Corinth while he was there? Who did Paul meet in Corinth? Give you a hint. He lived with them and worked with them. Aquila and Priscilla, right? Some Jewish Christians named Aquila and Priscilla who had been kicked out of Rome by Emperor Claudius also in 49 AD and who also worked Paul's same trade of leather and canvas working. Paul lived and worked with them during his 18-month stay in Corinth. And then when Paul left Corinth, who went with him? Aquila and Priscilla. They went with him when he left Corinth. One of the next stops Paul made after leaving Corinth was to a city named Ephesus. So Paul went on to Sencrea, then went across the Aegean Sea to this city of Ephesus. But for the first time that he went to Ephesus here on his second missionary journey, he only stayed there for a very short period of time. But when Paul returned to Antioch to finish out his second missionary journey, who did he leave behind in Ephesus to provide leadership for the very new church there in Ephesus? 
Aquila and Priscilla. So he left Aquila and Priscilla behind in Ephesus while he continued on to uh, Antioch to finish out his second missionary journey. While Aquila and Priscilla, this is important, stay with me, this is important to the, the letter of 1 Corinthians. While Aquila and Priscilla were ministering in Ephesus, they met a very eloquent and powerfully spoken man named Apollos who knew a lot about the Jewish scriptures, what they said about the Messiah, and proving to whoever he spoke with that that Messiah in the Jewish scriptures is Jesus. Apollos had a bit of misunderstanding when it came to baptism and its connection to Jesus, but after some sensitive and gentle correction by Aquila and Priscilla, who saw great potential in this man for the kingdom of God, after finding out that he wanted to go to Corinth, they encouraged him to go there and preach and teach and encourage the church. So off Apollos went from Ephesus to Corinth to strengthen the church there and to encourage it and to lead more people to the Lord there in Corinth. So off Apollos went and Acts 18 tells us that he was of great benefit to the Corinthian church, led many people to the Lord, brought many more souls into the kingdom of God and really built up the church there in Corinth. However, there would be some tensions in the Corinthian church that would arise out of the inclusion of this other church leader. Paul was there, remember, Paul was there for 18 months, right? Establishing the church and establishing deep relationships in the church. Now Apollo shows up and wins even more souls for the kingdom, adding even more people to the church. And there starts being some tension in the church because of that. We'll soon see the divisions that the Corinthian believers created out of this situation and how Paul has to address that even as soon as the very first chapter of this letter to them. Again, following his departure from Corinth and then Ephesus for the first time, Paul returned to Antioch in the fall of 51 and then started his third missionary journey pretty soon after that, in the spring of 52, once again working his way through the Galatian cities. So the second missionary journey is this Burgundy line here. The third missionary journey, he once again starts out from Antioch, works his way once again through the Galatian cities, and ends up in Ephesus again. Paul would stay in Ephesus the second time for the next two and a half years. He would stay there. And it was towards the end of his time in Ephesus, in 55 AD, towards the end of that ministry, that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and sent it from Ephesus. We can narrow it down even further than that, though. In 1 Corinthians 16, we see that Paul desired to return to Corinth following the sending of 1 Corinthians, but not until after Jewish Pentecost, which as we talked about last week, always occurs between mid-May and mid-June. Looking at that, we can presume that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians pretty soon before that, most likely in the early to mid-spring of 55 AD. That's most likely when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians and sent it off in the early to mid-spring of 55 
A.D. This makes it the next recorded book of the New Testament that we have following 2 Thessalonians, even though there are about four to five years in between the writing of both of these letters. 2 Thessalonians was written about 50 A.D., and the very next recorded letter we have for us in the New Testament isn't written until early on in 55 A.D. Last week, we also talked about the history of the city of Corinth. We talked about how Corinth's history could be divided up into two phases, right? Old Corinth and New Corinth. Do you guys remember that? Old Corinth and New Corinth. Old Corinth was widely known throughout the ancient world for sexual promiscuity. The, world, the word Corinthiosteus was invented by an ancient Greek writer to define sexual looseness. That's what he created it based on the name for Corinth. In fact, it was known in that part of the world that to have a Corinthian girl meant that you hired a prostitute. It would, that's the reputation that old Corinth had in the ancient world. However, old Corinth rebelled against Roman rule. And in 146 BC, Rome completely annihilated the city of Old Corinth, slaughtering or selling into slavery all of its inhabitants. Corinth remained uninhabited for the next hundred years until Julius Caesar refounded it in 46 BC as a colony for retired Roman army veterans. In 27 BC, newly refounded Corinth became the capital city of the region of Achaia, from where the governor over Achaia, such as Galio, would reside and rule from. Even though the church in the city that Paul was writing to certainly wasn't the same city it used to be, with that same reputation, since New Corinth was a port city, as we see here, with the pleasures of the ancient world pouring into it, it wasn't too far off, and old habits die hard. Since New Corinth was a landless society, the rich built their fortunes on sea trade, not from inherited land from their forefathers, and so they were considered new rich than anything else. This, self, this all leads to the problems, some of the problems going on in the Corinthian church. The self-centered arrogance that comes with that attitude of, of, of uh, new richness character, that characterized the city soon found its way into the church. In fact, one biblical scholar noted that if there is anything that the Corinthian church could or should be known for, it was self-centered arrogance. That's what the Corinthian church should be known for self-centered arrogance and that's going to keep coming up time and time again in this letter that attitude and lifestyle permeated all of the issues that Paul would need to address in this letter to them from divisions in the church to their selfish understanding of spiritual gifts now, there's a lot more that we talked about last week in relation to the origin and condition of the Corinthian church. So if you did miss that message last week, be sure to check it out on our website or your favorite podcast platform. That way you can get brought up to speed and we're all on the same page as we continue to see how that background directly feeds into our understanding of the topics Paul deals with in this letter. You'll know from last week that there are several topics 
And let's see them. Boom, boom, boom. Several topics that Paul deals with that we are very much still dealing with today, both in the church and in the church's relationship to the world around it. So in order to accurately understand and, just as important, accurately apply this letter's teaching, we must accurately understand the background, condition, and specific issues that Paul is addressing here. So we talked all, we talked all about the background. It was a, a summary of what we talked about last week. And now we're going to get into the thesis here. Now we're going to get into the backbone that Paul will keep coming back to time and time again as he addresses what he talks about in the thesis here. I went through all of that background to review, of review to not only summarize what we talked about last week, but to set the stage for the words that we'll read this morning. With all that said... Let's read our, our passage this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 4. If you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, that's fine. There should be a, a Bible located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. I want all of us to see this. It's in the New Testament. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to be reading verses 4 through 8. And we read, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus that in everything you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. As has been noted by one biblical scholar, when you read those, after everything that we just went through, those words sound pretty odd, don't they? Paul's pretty, uh, gives a lot of commendation there for the condition that we just talked about uh, in the Corinthian church. Those are very odd words for Paul to use. Characterized, to, to, written to a church characterized by self-centered arrogance. On the surface, it doesn't seem like the Corinthians were deserving of those words. And that's the point. That's the point. The point is that none of us are deserving of hearing those words that we just read. It's only because of God's grace that Paul notes here in verse 4 in the Corinthians' lives that Paul could write them these things. It had nothing to do with them. It had everything to do with God's grace. And this was the perfect way to begin this letter. For any correction must have the gospel as its foundation. You see, in general, the fastest way to combat selfish arrogance is to turn one's mind to Jesus. To turn one's mind to the sacrifice he made on our behalf. And to turn one's mind to the undeserved grace that God gives to us only through Jesus' death and resurrection. What does that do? That deflates the ego pretty quickly, doesn't it? The Corinthians had lost sight of the grace of God, which was given to them in Christ Jesus, as verse 4 clearly says, as the very basis for their church and for their salvation in the first place. So Paul had to remind them of that in a very inspiring way. 
It's well written in these verses, aren't they? They're beautifully written here. He did that to inspire them. These verses will provide the backbone that Paul will use to address the severe problems that riddled the Corinthian church. So Paul immediately reminds the Corinthians of the grace of God, completely unrelated to any inherent goodness or any skill found in the Corinthians, only given because of Jesus' sacrifice on their behalf. They were sinners, just like any one of us. And thus, we have nothing to boast about except how God saved us from ourselves. That's the only thing we have to boast about. However, as one biblical scholar noted, one of the things the Corinthians were boasting about was their receipt and use of the spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy, which Paul notes as speech and knowledge in verse 5 here. You see that. He refers to speech and knowledge. And he's talking about those spiritual gifts of tongues and prophecy. He knocks that right down in verse 5, that arrogance in those spiritual gifts, even though he'll elaborate on that once again in chapters 12 through 14. But his point here, before he, well before he gets into chapters 12 through 14, is this. Any spiritual gift, any prophecies, tongues, anything else the Corinthians had, were not for their own exploitation or personal gain. That was one thing they were not given for, their own exploitation or personal gain. What they were given for, what they were given by God for, was for the building up of His church. That's what they were given for. That takes all the focus off of us. They were given to build up His church church. In addition, those gifts were not to be flaunted by the Corinthians, but they were to be simply confirmations of their foundation of faith. Once again, one for them by Jesus and given to them by the Holy Spirit, as Paul notes in verse 6. It had nothing to do with them. It's this very same reasoning that Paul says in verse 7 that because the spiritual gifts were given out by the Holy Spirit for his own reasons and for the ultimate purpose of building up the church, they should have no reason to place an emphasis on trying to get as much of the gifts of tongues and prophecy as they could. The perfect level of each gift would be given to the people that the Holy Spirit saw fit to give it to, and the church would not be lacking any spiritual gift it needed. That's what Paul is saying in verse 7. If one of them didn't have the highly valued gifts of tongues or prophecy, they shouldn't feel slighted. Why? Because it was all up to God in the first place. He's the one who chose which one of them was going to get which gifts. And again, the very reason for all of it is to build up his church it had nothing to do with them. It has nothing to do with us. What God gave to them is what God wanted to give to them. Nothing more, nothing less. Paul says exactly this when he says later on, it is the one and only spirit who distributes these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. He alone 
Again, Paul will elaborate much more on this further on, which we'll get to further on down the road. The bottom line of this thesis section of Paul's letter is that we have nothing to boast about and that everything in our lives, no matter what it is, must be attributed to God. It doesn't matter what it is. It must be attributed to God for He's the one who gave it to us in the, in the first place. Because of that, there, what happens when we put our focus completely on that? There is no room for pride or self-centeredness, much less a selfish desire to indulge in sin. There is only one God and one body of Christ. According to one biblical scholar, it is for this reason, and this reason alone, that Paul's confidence in the Corinthian salvation is not because of the Corinthians themselves, but because of God's faithfulness. That's his only reason. God's faithfulness. He says exactly that at the end of this section, verse 9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's only God's faithfulness that any of us are saved and preserved in that faith. It's only because of God's faithfulness. It has nothing to do with us, whether our own perceived abilities for the cause of Christ or a sin that keeps dogging us. It has nothing to do with us. It only has to do with God's faithfulness. That's what Paul is thankful for in the Corinthians' lives, as he mentions in, verses four, in verse 4. And as verse 9 summarizes, it is God who calls us into fellowship with him and through the death and resurrection of his son. Jesus Christ. It is God who gives us, uh, gives those of us he calls to salvation through his son, spiritual gifts that confirm that calling, as verses 5 through 7 explain. Then it's God who will preserve us till the very end when Jesus returns at his second coming following the great tribulation at the time of the battle of Armageddon. That might sound familiar to some of you who went through the Second Thessalonians series with us because Paul wrote something very similar to that to the Thessalonian church. So let's read verse, uh, verses 7 through 8 in our passage this morning again. Read, the, read these along with me. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's read what Paul wrote to the, the Thessalonian church. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. You believed the gospel. It's very similar to what Paul says in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, isn't it? There's no room for pride or self-centeredness in the church or in the kingdom of God. There's no room for it. Zilch. Zero. There is only room for gratefulness to God for saving us from ourselves and that we were headed for eternal destruction. That's all we have. 
is gratefulness to God for saving us from that. There is only room for being grateful for what spiritual gifts he's given to us, not thinking, ah, why didn't you give me this? I wish I had this. There is only room to be grateful for what spiritual gifts he's given to us, not to squander on ourselves, but to use to build up God's church. There is no room for division in connection with these spiritual gifts or for any reason. There is only room for unity and pressing on together for the progression of the gospel. There is only room to be grateful that it will be God and only God who will preserve us till the very end. Even though this is Paul's thesis and backbone for which he will elaborate on throughout his letter, this is also foundational as a backbone for us as individuals and as a church. A lot of problems would be solved if we all kept the focus off of ourselves and only put it on what God has given to us, what he's doing within us, and what he wants us to be doing for his kingdom. Take all the focus off of ourselves, what we want, what we want to be doing, and only put it on God and what he wants us to be doing. Nothing has anything to do with any one of us, including the guy standing in front of you. It's nothing to do with any one of us. It all has to do with God. God calling us, God saving us, God equipping us, and God preserving us. And all of it comes back to the only foundation any one of us has, which Paul lays out for us in verse 9. I want to read this one more time along with you. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the backbone of what we'll be elaborate on later. We thank you for the foundational truths that it, lo- that, that it lays for us. That a lot of problems would be solved if we were just grateful for what you have done for us. Took all the focus off of ourselves and placed it only on you and what you want us to be doing. Lord, we thank you that you called us. We thank you that you saved us through your son. Lord, we thank you that you're continuing to stretch us and grow us, lead us through trials and difficult times, right along being there with us and preserving us till the very end. Lord, we are grateful for you and only you. Let our lives reflect that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with me.